passage from the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. Uh, and so if you've got a Bible, I'd encourage you to open it up uh, and turn to Hebrews 11. If you don't have one, there are some that look just like this on the table at the back, and you are totally welcome to grab yourself one. Um, the words I'm going to read will come up on the screen behind me, but if you don't have a Bible, grab one, uh, look it up for yourself as well. If you pick up one of those from the back, we're, we're going to be on page 585, about halfway down in Hebrews chapter 11 from verse 17 to 19. Now we are in the middle of a series looking at this book uh, and the main recurring motif of this letter is that Jesus is better. It doesn't matter like what else you've experienced, what else you've pinned your hope on, what other religion, what other experience you've had, Jesus is better. And you'd be crazy to turn away from him and try and find your hope or security elsewhere. And that's essentially this theme that keeps coming back over and over. And we are in the middle of chapter 11, and we've, we've spent a few weeks in chapter 11 already. and We've got a couple more to go, including today. And in chapter 11... We have this great run of by faith, and then we hear stories of characters from the Old Testament who had faith in God and acted accordingly. David spoke last week about Abraham, and we're going to carry on with another illustration from the life of Abraham this week. And if you remember, a few weeks back, though, last time I spoke, we looked at Noah. And as we did and, and picked up on this by faith theme, we defined faith in the context of Hebrews chapter 11. And what the writer is trying to get us to understand, we defined faith as believing God's word to be more true and more trustworthy than culture's insistence or our present circumstances. Okay, so faith as we're talking about it here, is a conviction that God's word, what he has to say, his promises are more true, more trustworthy, more reliable than our present circumstances or what culture would tell us we should believe or hope in or look to. Is that okay? Good. Well, we are going to carry on in that. And the reason we define faith that way, and the reason I think actually that's a very biblical way to understand faith, is we believe that because we believe God himself to be of such good character that he is incapable of lying, and of such authority that his word cannot fail. So if God is of such good character that he's incapable of lying, and he has such authority, or he is so powerful, that what he says will always come to pass, then we can take his word as reliable, can't we? Um, does that make logical sense to you? Yes? And that means we can have faith, like Abraham and Noah and the others who we read about. This kind of faith for them and in turn for us, 
is a conviction that God is both immeasurably powerful and incomparably good. The kind of things we've been singing about together this afternoon. And that conviction leads us to the conclusion that what he says is more true and trustworthy than anything else we've ever known or experienced. The people listed in Hebrews 11 were all convinced that that was the case. None more so perhaps than Abraham, whose journey of faith we're going to carry on reading it a bit about today. So we're going to read from verse 17 through 19, and then we're going to begin to unpack it and see what it says to us. It says this, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Lord, we thank you for your word. But I pray that you would help us to receive it with joy this afternoon. I pray that you would help us to take it into our hearts and to allow it to do us good this afternoon. For your glory we ask. Amen. Well, two short verses, big moment. What did we just read? By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, that is his only son, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. What is going on? What's this about? Well, if you don't know the story, which I'm sure some of you do, but others won't, let me fill in the blanks for you. In Genesis 15, God called Abraham and he made a promise to Abraham that he would make his descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. At the point that God made that promise to Abraham, he was an already fairly elderly man with a fairly elderly wife who was barren and beyond childbearing years. Seemed like a crazy promise. Sarah and Abraham, though, had faith. They believed God's word to be more true and trustworthy and reliable than their present circumstances, than the fact that they were knocking on a hundred and still didn't have children. In Genesis 21, we read, God was true to his word. And he provided for them a son, in Isaac, the first seed, the beginning of the fulfillment of that promise that Abraham's descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Just one son. The beginnings of the fulfillment of the promise that a great nation would grow from this, his only son. And then the event referenced here by the writer to the Hebrews, we read about in Genesis 22. Isaac was a young man at this point, and God instructed Abraham 
to sacrifice Isaac. And Abraham responded with faith and consequential obedience. This is an incredible story. I mean, it's one of incredible, compelling faith. And it has a huge amount to teach us. And I want to encourage you at some other point this week, read the chapters in Genesis and, and just see how it plays out. But we're going we're gonna to dig into a bit today. We're not going to be able to deep dive into all the aspects of that story. And, and actually, neither do I think we are supposed to today. The writer to the Hebrews has in view a, a couple of particular elements of that story. And that's where we're going to focus today. But I do want to note one thing quickly, because I think when we read this, we can instinctively be like, this is outrageous. God told him to kill his son. And, and actually, often as well, and again, we have to do this when we think about Old Testament narrative, is we can instantly also pick up like children's storybook renderings of these events. In the Old Testament, we talked a little about some of the weird kind of ideas that we bring into Noah's Ark and that story that aren't actually necessarily what it says in Scripture. And I think this is one of those where we tend to, in our mind, picture Abraham as this old guy and Isaac as this helpless little boy. And it becomes almost this kind of horrid picture of child abuse in some senses. God instructing a father to sacrifice his helpless child. And the, the trauma that he would have then consequently been put through. But I just want to address that up front because that's actually most certainly not the case. So the word used in Genesis 22 when we read about Abraham and Isaac and Isaac is the boy when Abraham says to those with them, the boy and I will go over here, well, that word translated boy is the same word used in that same chapter to talk about the young men who accompanied them on their journey. It was a three-day walk that they'd taken, which Isaac undertook. There aren't many very young children undertaking three-day walks. Isaac carried the bundle of wood up the mountain. Now, again, we tend to get a picture of that, and it's like a little few twigs. They were going to build a fire substantial enough to consume a ram. That's not just a couple of twigs. There would have been a substantial bundle of wood. Most scholars looking at this, looking at the language used, looking at the context surrounding it, looking at the other events listed either side of this event, would actually place Isaac at least in his late teens, and some would go even towards his early 30s. Remember, Abraham is at this point around about 100 over a hundred, actually. You've got a young guy, probably in his physical prime, and a fairly frail man. 
Abraham would have more likely needed Isaac's help to make the three-day journey and to get up the mountain than Isaac needing Abraham's. Okay, so in terms of our mental picture of what's going on here physically, that's helpful for us to understand. Isaac would have been easily able to overpower his father if he wanted to. Isaac could have refused this moment. But he didn't. Which we'll come back to later. He was a willing participant in this. Now, with that out of the way, just let what's going on here sink in for a minute. God called Abraham away from his homeland, away from his family, and into a new land that he and his descendants would inherit. Not knowing where that was, Abraham got up and he obeyed God and trusted God to lead him, which God did. God then kept Abraham and his wife Sarah safe as they travelled. More than once, they could have ended up in slavery or worse. But God preserved them and was faithful to his promise. Now, Abraham and Sarah didn't always get it right. You read the story for yourself. Like Abraham did some stupid stuff along the way, tried to take matters into his own hands. But yet through all of that, God preserved them. God promised to make him a great nation, even though they were childless. They believed God in that. And God provided miraculously a son, Isaac. And then God says, give Isaac up. Give Isaac up. Give him back to me as an act of worship. Just, just allow that to sink in a minute. Crazy journey, away from everything they knew, following God, trusting him, crazy promises, a long time of waiting, and all of a sudden, wow, it feels like this is happening, finally. It feels like the promise is being fulfilled. They hadn't inherited the land yet. We looked at that with Dave last week. So they're in this place that hasn't been delivered over into their hands fully. They're certainly not a great nation. There's one son, but at least it's the beginning. Oh, Lord, you're beginning to do it. I see your promises are coming to fruition. And then God says, hey, offer him up as an act of worship. This is mind-blowing, isn't it? Like it actually seems crazy to us. Like, how, what? Well, what's going on? I'm really grateful for the writer to the Hebrews in helping us understand what's going on in this passage. Because inspired by the Holy Spirit, he gives us some insight. The first thing we read in verse 17 is this. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested. Ah, what's going on? God is testing Abraham in asking him to do this. To what end? 
Why is God testing Abraham? God is testing him so that Abraham would see and trust and worship the giver of the promise, God himself, more than what he provides or what Abraham saw as the probable fulfillment of the promise. Let me just try and express that another way. The test for Abraham was this. Would he put his hope in Isaac as the one through whom his descendants would become numerous? He could see that and join the dots. Ah, this is how it works out. It's through him. Would he put his trust in Isaac as the one through whom his descendants would become numerous? Or would he trust the God who had made the promise in the first place? That's the test. Does he trust God's provision in that moment more than he trusts God himself, who promised and who provided? That would have been easy, even logical, for Abraham to reject this request from God, wouldn't it? I mean, it would. Yeah? You've gone through the journey he've gone through. You finally have this son. You see, this is, this is it, Lord. It's about to happen. <laughs> it would be very easy to go, nah, that cannot possibly be God asking me to do that. Surely not. No, God promised me descendants, numerous as the stars, Isaac himself was miraculous provision. We were too old to have children. God provided him. He's the start of that promise being fulfilled. There's no way God could possibly be asking me to give him up. And there's no way I'm going to. That attitude can be found in us too, can't it? How often and how easily we can get attached to the things that God has provided for us and begin to make them an end in themselves. Instead of trusting him on the basis of who he is and on the basis of his character, if we're not careful, we can begin to view the things God has provided for us as the source of hope in our lives, as offering us a kind of functional Salvation in a moment. Abraham didn't know how this was all going to work out. But amazingly, he trusted God that he would work out his plan and that his promises would come to pass. And so Abraham responded in faith. He didn't hold on to Isaac. But he trusted God. And we read this. Abraham offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son. Of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. 
what does Abraham's response to the call of God look like in this moment? It's about worship. That phrase offered up is, it's about worship. Abraham was so certain of God's trustworthiness and his worthiness of worship, he saw God's word as so much more reliable and trustworthy than his ability to understand or reason it all out that he responded in obedience and prepared to offer his son back to God as an act of worship. I guess I just want to consider for a moment, like, are we able to do that? Like with everything that God's put in our hands? The things maybe that we've longed for and hoped for and prayed for or even felt God promised to us? Are we become clingy to those things? Or are we prepared to say, open-handed. God, I, I want to offer that back to you as an act of worship. Thank you for providing, but I'm trusting you. I'm, I'm not hoping in that thing. I thank you for it, but if you take it away, I trust you. I trust you. That's what's going on here. And although Abraham didn't know how it was going to work, Abraham was so convinced in the certainty of God's promise, we read in verse 19, that he considered that God was even able to raise him from the dead. So Abraham gives Isaac over to God. He's prepared to sacrifice him. But he's prepared to sacrifice him, believing, Lord, if it is through Isaac that you want to outwork these promises then I can be obedient to you and offer him back and you'll raise him from the dead. That's how sure I am that your promises are true. Abraham was clear. God is no man's debtor. He always keeps his promises. God has promised it God will do it. It's incredible faith, isn't it? And that meant for Abraham that he could rest in God's promise. He didn't have to strive or try to engineer the fulfillment of the promise. He didn't have to cling on to something in a way that was unhealthy or unhelpful. In this case, he didn't need to hold on tightly to Isaac. God's promised. God's going to do it. My part is to trust him and to be obedient. And so I can be open-handed. There are other points, you see, when you read Abraham's story. There's one of my favorite bits where he's with his nephew Lot, who was traveling with him, and God had blessed them, and the, the... Cattle and the people who were with them, even though Abraham had no children at this point, the cattle and the people who were with them were so numerous that it was impractical them being together anymore and their herdsmen had started bickering over the best pasture. And he, They agreed it was best to part ways. 
Now they're in land that God has promised Abraham. Abraham knew that. But he was also comfortable to trust God. That he didn't have to force it or engineer it. And so he open-handedly says to Lot, you choose. Like you, you pick where you want to go. You pick the land. And Lot picks what on the surface looks like the best pasture. Turned out to be a really bad choice. But you can read that another time. <laughs> Lot picks and Abraham takes what on the surface at first glance looks like bad pasture. He wasn't grabbing for something. He wasn't trying to force what God had promised into fulfillment. He trusted, God, you've promised me this land. This is my inheritance. I don't have to grab for it. This is another moment with Isaac where Abraham displays the same heart. You know, sometimes, and I know my own heart in this, and I'm guessing I'm not the only one, we can cling so tightly to stuff, can't we? Maybe, maybe this is more me than other people just because of my job ministry opportunity but Lord you promised you were going to use me in that way easy to hold on to it not be open handed and trust God easy to try and make something happen instead of resting in his promises money possessions position influence relationships but God this is what you promised I'm sure it is and we get clingy and we hold on. Think this, this has got to be the way you're going to outwork your promises in my life. I'm sure it is. I'm so sure it is. And we hold on to it instead of holding on to him. Trust me. If it is what God has promised. And if it is the means by which he's going to outwork that. <laughs> nothing and no one's going to take that out of your hands. And you do not have to try and force it. You can rest in his sovereignty. And I want to suggest, just for us to consider, if there's anything, and I mean literally anything, possession, status, relationship, anything in your life, that you aren't open-handed before God about, then I want to lovingly suggest that you've begun to hope in or trust in that thing more than you have the one who provided it in the first place. That's what God was testing in Abraham. He's asking him, he's challenging him. Abraham, what's your security in? I guess I want to ask you guys today, I want to ask us to consider, what is it? What's your security in? Is it in me? Or is it in the things I've provided for you? Can you take everything and offer it in worship to God? Like genuinely? I'm not saying you should feel overjoyed at the prospect of losing things you hold dear. I'm not saying you should feel delighted at the, the prospect of losing a loved one, for instance. 
Not saying like, that's a, like, woo, it's a great thing because I'm trusting God. Like, you don't have to be fake about it. Painful. Heartbreaking. You know, I, I would imagine Abraham didn't sleep so well the few nights before they went to Mount Moriah. Yeah? What father would? But he was clear. God, I'm trusting you more than this. You know, can you say, Lord, in my marriage, let it be for your glory, nothing else, for your glory. Lord, my career, I trust you with it. Let me make decisions about how I spend my time and my money for your glory as an act of worship. And if it's taken away, if I lose it all, I still trust you. My life is in your hands. Every breath is your provision. I trust you. Even if you snuff this out, I trust you. If I get terminal cancer, I trust you. Whatever it is, Lord, I trust you. That's what's going on in this passage. That's what this is about. Abraham got it. See, Abraham's had such a captivating view of God as faithful and trustworthy that instead of holding Isaac back for himself, he could offer him back to God as an act of worship. And trust that God would raise him again if that's what God had planned. And if that's not what God had planned, God was still worthy of worship. It's amazing, isn't it? You know, Genesis 22 backs up what the writer to the Hebrews says here about Abraham's being so convinced that if it's what God had planned, he could raise him. It's interesting, we read from verse 5. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back to you. That's not incidental detail. It's like we're going over there to worship and we're coming back. Abraham was convinced. Abraham was confident in God even though he didn't know how it was going to work. So what did happen? How did it work out? I mean, I know some of you know the end of the story, but the writers of the Hebrews doesn't actually tell us the end of the story. We haven't read that far yet in Genesis. What happened? Were they there on the mountain? They've built the altar ready Isaac's asked dad we're here where's the sacrifice Abraham responds in faith again the the, the Lord will provide we don't know exactly what then happened in terms of their discussion but Isaac's on the altar 
And Abraham's ready. Life raised, ready to follow through in obedience to God. And God spoke again. We read from verse 12 of Genesis 22. Hopefully this should come up on the screen. It says, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. Abraham went back and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. In Abraham's heart, he was ready to do it. He'd prepared himself for that. As a father, I'm sure he had grieved. I can't imagine what was going on in his head or his heart, but he trusted God. And God, figuratively speaking, as the writer to the Hebrews said, did bring Isaac back from the dead. Abraham had considered him in that moment as good as dead. This is happening (laughs) Lord, I trust you can bring him back. Well, figuratively speaking, God does bring him back. Because at the last, he stops him. Abraham, well done. <laughs> like you, you trusted me. You, you considered me as more worthy than holding on to your son. You've not withheld him from me. And God provides another sacrifice. He provided a sacrificial ram to take Isaac's place. As Abraham trusted God and handed his son over, God provided, proved himself faithful again and restored Isaac to Abraham. And the story continues and he restates his promise He fulfills his promise in the most extraordinary way. See, God always keeps his promises. To those who respond in faith and obedience, God always blesses. Not necessarily the way we expect, not necessarily in the next 70 or 80 years. But he does. This account that the writer to Hebrews calls to mind for us, this account in Genesis points forwards. It anticipates a greater reality where the snuffing out of hope was in reality the fulfillment of great promise. Because Isaac, in lots of ways actually, functions for us as an illustration or a picture of the Son of God, Jesus. Not fully, because so does the ram, but we're not going to go there today. See, these events point forward to another son and father. And an occasion where the father actually handed over and sacrificed his son. And the son, Jesus, like Isaac, willingly took his place. 
willingly gave his life for the salvation of his brothers and sisters so that he would be the firstborn of many. Isaac, the promise, the beginning, the first seed of this great nation. The picture of Jesus, who would be the firstborn from among the dead, the first of many sons and daughters who would know their heavenly father. Isaac's return to his father from the dead anticipate a greater resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus, which in turn secures our resurrection from the dead. The resurrection to eternal life for all who hope in him. Like Abraham, though, we're called to trust God. We're called to trust God even when it looks as if everything is stacked against the fulfillment of the promise. Tom Schreiner, theologian and author, writes about it like this. He says, God's word always comes true even if it takes a resurrection to bring it to pass. You think, I like that. And that's what we have in Jesus, isn't it? What looked like defeat, what looked like loss, what looked like hope extinguished at the cross. was actually the fulfillment. What looked like the end. <laughs> it was just the beginning in so many ways. And resurrection makes all the difference. See, God fulfilled his promises to Abraham. God was faithful to his son, Jesus. And he will be faithful to you too. He is totally totally trustworthy and although actually we shouldn't need any evidence to convince us of that fact we've got an abundance of it haven't we right here we see Abraham and Jesus as proof that God will always always keep his promises secure in that truth, I want to encourage you to loosen your grip. I want to encourage you to stop stressing about how it's all going to work out. Yes, we need to be faithful. Yes, we want to be diligent and keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. This isn't a call to passivity or laziness, but a call to resting in the goodness of God. Your hope is sure and steadfast in Him. He's faithful, He's not going to fail you. He's not going to fail you. I know. That it's easy to hold on to stuff. To place our hope in things 
good stuff, right? Actually, things that God's provided. But when we start to hold on to them so tightly that we cannot bear the thought of not having them, and we cannot imagine the idea of God as good if we were to lose them, then we've begun to make them God, actually. We've begun to put them in his place. Would have been so easy for Abraham to do that with Isaac, right? So easy. I think we can find ourselves doing it with much lesser things. I know I can. But as I read this week, I found myself again just coming back to him. Just wondering again at his goodness. Thinking, oh Lord, <laughs> I want you. I, I trust you. If, if you take all this from me, I'll still have you. <laughs> you know, we sometimes sing words like, you're all I need. And I don't think we often consider how true that really is. I want to pray for us and I want to encourage you to to just respond where you are.